0: All right, Acts 20, so uh, we've been looking at the same chapter for two weeks. We're, we're not going to finish today, kind of bogging down a little bit. It's this farewell message from Paul to the Ephesian elders. When I say elder, don't hear institutional uh, church. It's not what's going on. It's uh, the church in the New Testament. So there's a church in Ephesus in this city, but they everybody met in homes. And maybe occasionally they would get together as a big group if they could get a venue but, in, but Paul is talking, it, it, it's small group leaders. That's who he's calling out. That's, that would be the picture. People who have 8 or 10 or 12 or maybe even 20 people meeting in their home. And he's called these guys out to him. He's in a town called Miletus, 30 miles outside of Ephesus, because he's headed to Jerusalem. And he wants to give them this last message uh, before he leaves. And this is the only sermon in Acts where Paul addresses a church, where he's addressing, addressing a group of believers. And so we're taking our time walking through it. and I want us to hear what Paul has to say today. I will say it, it's, it's heavy what he's saying today. There's a real, in my opinion, a, a real sense of, of weight and uh, urgency to this section that we're going to look at today. I don't want you to leave feeling heavy, but there's some, some serious things that Paul is addressing. So verse 25 of chapter 20. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So again, to me, there's some some urgency and some weight behind what what Paul is saying. Those first three verses, what Paul is saying is, I was a good watchman. I was a good watchman. I'm not going to see you again. That's Paul's conviction. I'm leaving. He spent three years in Ephesus, and now he's leaving. He's saying, "I'm I'm not coming back. The Holy Spirit's leading me to Jerusalem. I don't know what's in front of me, but I know it's going to be difficult. Uh, The the prophets are saying that I'm going to be put in prison. So I don't think I'm coming. And even if I get, I'm freed from that. My plan is to go to Rome and then to go to Spain. I'm not coming back here. And so he says, as he's leaving, and this is odd, we don't really say this in our farewell speeches. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. We don't, again, that's not really... Uh, phrases that we use, because I shared with you everything I had. The picture is this idea of a watchman. It's drawing from the Old Testament. So cities were walled, and so you would put someone on the top of the wall, especially at night, so they could see if anybody was coming. And so that was a job. It was like a guard. And if somebody was coming, if an enemy was coming, they had that ram's horn. It's called a shofar. It's like a trumpet. And they would blow that, and so everybody in the city who's behind the wall who can't see, there's no windows, they would know, hey, trouble's coming, we've got to you know, get on our horses, whatever it is they did, get the weapons, batten down the hatches, whatever you do in the city when the enemies are coming. And so that's the picture that Paul is drawing from. He's been a watchman. In Ezekiel, he was a prophet in the Old Testament. God specifically says to Ezekiel, I'm putting you, Ezekiel, on a wall as a watchman. It's a picture of this kind of prophetic role that Ezekiel played, and that's what Paul's talking about. This is... Um, God speaking to Ezekiel, son of man, that's Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you don't warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you, Ezekiel, accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person and they don't turn from their wickedness or their evil ways... They will die for their sin, but you, Ezekiel, will have saved yourself. You see the idea there. The job of the watchman is to give a warning. He's not responsible for response. Everyone's responsible for their own response. The job of the watchman is to say trouble is coming. And Paul has said, for three years I've been on the wall, so to speak, and I've, I've warned you night and day with tears. I've given you everything that I have. I've proclaimed to you the whole will, the whole plan and purpose of God. I've pointed you in a new direction. He comes to Ephesus. There is no even really uh, discernible Jewish presence. They, the city' under the auspices of this goddess Artemis, and there's a massive temple to her, and all kinds of worship to her it goes at the Torah, It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple in Ephesus, to Artemis. and Paul's saying, I, "I showed you a new way. Jew and Greek. I showed you a new way. I told you about the God of, in heaven." I told you about his son Jesus. I told you about his plan for your life and how you can access that. And so I'm innocent of your blood. What you do with it, um, with that message, is up to you. And then Paul gets really to the meat of what he wants to say to them. And there's three commands that really encompass two actions. He says, keep watch, be a shepherd, be on your guard. Keep watch and be on your guard are very similar. What he's saying is... The imagery of a shepherd there. That that the idea is that they're they're wolves and they're prowling around. And shepherds, you can't fall asleep. You've got to be awake. You've got to be alert. There are people who are looking to take out the members of your church, and your job is to protect the flock. That word overseer is—it's the word guardian. Don't hear official church uh, positions there. It's a guardian. Your job as a shepherd is to protect. These sheep. It's it's a bit of a negative. It's keeping out. In particular, in this case, it's keeping out falsehood or keeping out deception. And then he says, Be shepherds or feed the sheep. Feed this church that God purchased with his own blood. So it's not just about keeping out deception, it's about. Imparting and instructing and teaching things that are true—it's it's two sides of the teaching coin, both a positive and a negative, a, a protecting from, a keeping out, and a investing in, a, a giving to. And Paul says, "I want you to do that." What he's doing—he's passing the baton. He's saying, "I'm getting off the wall," and so now it's it, it you got you've got to get on it. I'm gone. I'm not coming back. I've been here for three years. I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's in front of me, but I'm not coming back here. And so here small group leaders, here, house church leaders, here's the baton, get on the wall. And if you say, well, that's not me either, Paul is speaking to anyone who has spiritual influence in the lives of anyone else. And that's all of us. You have spiritual influence in your home. You have spiritual influence in your place of business. You have spiritual influence in your neighborhood. You're a missionary. If you're following Jesus, you've been called by him to a particular place. He's put you somewhere and in that place he has given you spiritual authority and so he's saying to you get on the wall keep watch over yourselves yes and over this flock and again there's some weight to it this flock the holy spirit's put you there it's not by accident it's not by your choice he's put you there again if you're following jesus you don't have a, it, it, it's not really up for debate it's not, it's not a watchman these people they're precious this is the church these are the people who who god has bought with the blood of his son. And and those who've yet to say yes to him, he's passionately pursuing to draw them into relationship as well. These are precious people who God is entrusting to your influence and to your care. So Paul says, you got to keep watch, be a shepherd of your own heart and of the hearts of those in your sphere of influence. Because there are false teachers. There are these there are these savage wolves. There's guys who are coming from the outside. And he says, even from among you. I don't know if he means literally the group he's talking to, or more in general the church. But he says, from among y'all, there's going to be people who come up who get led astray, and they lead others astray. And so you've got to be ready for this. You've got to be alert. You've got to be attentive. You've got to look out for danger and you've got to be building people up in the truth. I've told you all before I was a bank teller for two summers and the way they taught us to discern counterfeit money was by feeling real money. It can't, you can't fake the paper that it's on. You can fake the printing. You can't fake the paper. And so if you know what real money feels like, then when a counterfeit bill passes through, you'll, you'll recognize it without even having to look at it. Do it with your eyes closed. It feels different. Give them the truth. So that if, if something comes along, it, just, it doesn't feel right. They'll recognize it and be able to stop and investigate. And so that's what Paul is saying to these guys. And, and so for us, stepping back and looking at that, again, recognizing we all have spiritual authority, at a minimum in your own heart, but also in the lives of others, what would Paul say to us? One, be a watchman. Be a watchman. He's put you on a wall. This one is convicting for me. I'm an introvert. I definitely don't... I don't enjoy really ruffling people's, even talking to people. He says, be a watchman, kind of the picture there. The people in my circle, if they're going to go to hell, they need to do it knowingly. Nobody in my circle needs to go and then say, what, there was another option? You, did, you didn't tell me. You didn't tell me there was another kingdom. You didn't tell me that I... That there was a God in heaven who loved me and sent his son who died in my place so that my sins could be forgiven and so I could live forever. What do you, how did you not tell me that? That's what it, be a watchman. Now, we can hear that and guilt's a terrible motivator and we can think, I'm going to go send an email to everybody and say, hey, by the way, a lot of y'all are going to hell. And then, and my, my hands are clean. Your blood's not on my head. Nope. Good for you, bad for them. Paul says, three years I served with great humility. And with tears, he was invested heavily in the lives of these people. He says, I warned you, day and night with tears, his heart is fully committed to the people in Ephesus. This is not a, a drive-by, how-do-I-make-sure-I'm-not-responsible-for-any-of-you-guys type thing. Deep commitment, deep, profound love for these people that he's he's been living among for the past three years. And from that place, he says, he says, I gave you everything I had, Jew or Gentile. I get Anything I had that was beneficial and helpful, I shared it with you. And that's the posture for us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Be a watchman. That's being heavily invested. Your heart, heavily invested in the lives of the people in your circle. Looking for opportunities. Your job is not to convert. Your job is not even necessarily to convince. You can't change people's minds and you can't make them believe something. The job of a watchman is Acts 1 8. You'll be a witness. It's to tell, it's to proclaim, it's to demonstrate. This isn't about forcing anybody to accept anything. It's about demonstrating and proclaiming that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who has a plan and purpose for their life, and that can be accessed through his son Jesus. That's what we're doing. Response is up to the people. So be a watchman, be a shepherd of your own heart, and the hearts of your flock, the hearts of your people. Proverbs 4.23 says, uh, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life, or everything from your life comes from your heart. And so what Paul says, keep watch over yourselves first. And so we have a responsibility to guard and to watch our own heart. They say that the average American consumes 10 hours of media a day. I don't understand that, but that's what they say. And so even if you're ahead of the curve and you're four or five hours, that's a lot of messages. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, whatever's pure, whatever's holy, whatever's noble, whatever's admirable, whatever's excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. And so if I look at that standard and I look at what I watch and what I read and what I listen to, I don't know how much fits. The solution is not to go Amish. That doesn't help anyone at all. We're to be salt and light. We don't want to pull out. From community. We don't even want to pull out. We can't pull out from technology and media. But there's a recognition that what comes in me will come out of me. The reason those guys pay that much money for commercials during the Super Bowl is because they know when you watch them, you will go buy Doritos. That They know that. They're not just throwing money away. It works. And it works on us. We're susceptible to all of those messages. All of us are. And so we need to pay attention what's coming in to my heart because it's going to shape my thoughts and my words and my behavior. It's going to come in. I remember we had just gotten married and we were dead dog broke and so on Friday nights kind of our entertainment was I would make macaroni and cheese and that's what we ate and then we could rent, this was VCR. So I, we would rent a, y'all don't even know what that is, it's a tape. So we would rent these. We would rent videos from the gas station slash grocery store. That's all we had in our little town of four thousand people, and there was nothing there. Very difficult to find. So we would get all these kind of action movies. No, no sex, just blood. Fine seeing people die. Just don't want to see them kiss. So that's what I would get, and we watch those. And then I found myself having nightmares. It's like, man, why? Is, what about this dream? This doesn't even make sense. And then I realized after about four or five weeks, I'm having these dreams because I'm watching these movies. What's in me, what I'm putting in, is affecting even my dreams. And that's a silly example. What you're ingesting comes out of you. Count on it. So how are you guarding your own heart? Again, solution's not to completely unplug. That's, that's impossible for most of us. But are you... Are you guarding at all? Are you aware of what's going in and how it's impacting you? And then, are you guarding my heart? You have a responsibility to me too. I've got lettuce in my teeth. I've got blind spots that I can't see. If you see me wandering towards sin, that's James 5, 19 and 20. If you see me wandering towards sin, you have a responsibility to tell me. This is not about busybody. This is not about you telling me how to live my life. Not matters that are disputable. Clear issues of sin and righteousness. If you see me moving towards sin, for goodness sakes, tell me. Let me know. And if I see you moving in that direction, I have a responsibility to do the same. I want to guard my own heart. I want to guard your heart as well. You want to guard your own heart and guard mine as well. We need to recognize there's going to be falsehood. There's going to be deception until Jesus comes back. False Christs, false apostles, false prophets, false teachers. As you read the New Testament, all those guys and all their lies and all their deceptions until Jesus returns, that's that's part of the plan or part of the program. And so we've got to recognize that and we want to be alert for that. We want to be watchmen for other people. We want to be shepherds, keeping watch of our own heart and the hearts of others and recognizing that deception is still out there. And, and it's not a guy with a pointy tail and a pitchfork. None of you are falling for that. He masquerades as an angel of light. That's the one that gets us. It's not the wolf. It's the wolf in sheep's clothing. That's the one that's hard to discern. Paul said, this is going to happen. He'd been gone for two years. He'd taken a really circuitous route uh, to get to Jerusalem. He left Ephesus. Two years later, he's back. And I don't know what he. I don't know if he picked up on something in the people he was talking to. I don't know if he had some sense of discernment from God. But he said, "Trouble is coming. Deception is coming. False teachers are going to come. Savage wolves are coming." And it happens. He wrote uh, two letters. One to one to, to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, who was his protege. And these, these letters were written somewhere between uh, three and six, three and seven years after this message. And you can see, if you read 1 and 2 Timothy, huge theme. How do we deal with false teachers? How do we deal with false teaching? How do we give people sound instruction? What Paul said was going to happen, happened. You see it there on the screen. Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. That means they're doing it. They're in Ephesus. This one is devastating. Some have rejected their faith and a good conscience, and so have shipwrecked their faith. I don't know how that fits for you theologically. But what Paul is saying is that happened. People from within the church, people who were following Jesus, they were led astray and then they're leading others astray to the point that they've shipwrecked their own faith. And you can determine what shipwreck means. Two names, Himenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul still holds out hope for these two. And then again in 2 Timothy, avoid godless chatter. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, there's his name again, and Philetus, who departed from the truth. So we've got people who've been walking after Jesus, who've known the truth, who've come up within the church, and they've been led astray. And again, they're, they're leading others astray. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen within the capital C church until Jesus returns. There will absolutely be savage wolves who come from outside. A lot of us can recognize them for what they are, but even from within the church, there'll be people who maybe with the best of intentions are led astray, and then they'll shipwreck their own faith and, and, and maybe even lead others astray. I don't know anybody who wakes up in the morning and says, I want to shipwreck my faith. I would love to believe a lie. That would be great for me today. And I want to in- encourage you to believe that same lie. That's not where most of us live. And so hearing this, it can make us a little nervous. I don't know the Bible that well. Could I be led astray? Am I going to shipwreck my faith? Like, What does that mean? God gives us three guides to help us hold uh, zealously to the truth. He gives us his word, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us the church. He gives us the word, the Bible. I don't know any way to get it in you other than to read it or listen to it. For some of you, it is brutal. Now, I want to encourage you, figure out how to get it into you. Don't read it like a textbook. Don't read it like a history book. Don't read it like a collection of quotes where you're just looking for some pithy saying. Read it like a biography. That's what it is. We can't figure out God. So God said, here, let me introduce myself to you. He does it through this book. And he said, this this is my character. And you can know my character through my actions. So here's how I've acted in history. And here's where this whole thing is going and how you can get on board. It's a biography. Read it. You don't have to read it every day. Read it three days a week. You don't have to read it for an hour. Read it for 10 or 15 minutes. And as you read, ask, God, I'm reading Ruth. I got nothing. I need you to reveal something to me about your character through Ruth. Review Colossians. I don't even know who those people are. You got to tell me something about yourself. I'm bogging down in the details here. Show me something about yourself, and he will. You'll get to know him better, so then you have that sense of this is the real thing. And so when somebody says something, they say, you know what, Jesus really wasn't God; he was an angel. He was Michael. You'll say, ah, that doesn't seem right to me. I don't think so. Or let's say, you know what, Jesus didn't really die in the flesh. It was just a, it was a hallucination, or um, it was just it, it, he, he just fainted. You can say, ah, no, that, that that's not it. Or, or you know, the person Jesus died, but the Spirit of God had left him before that. The 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 Christ had. Le- spirit had left him and gone back to heaven you say that doesn't that does not feel right you'll know because you've gotten to know God just like if someone sent an email uh, from the account of someone who you know and love you would be able to tell pretty quickly that's not them that doesn't sound like them the same thing is true as you get in the word and again that's there's a discipline there I don't know how else to there are no shortcuts he's given us his spirit, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. He is the spirit of truth. Part of his job is to guide us into all truth. Some people call it intuition. I don't know what that is. But I do know, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you and he speaks to you with a still, small voice. And he will let you know. I ah, have this in right. You may not be able to articulate why, but you'll just know that you have this feeling. Even if you're a thinker, there's this feeling. Ah, this, this is squishy to me. I don't know about this. Most of us run through those stop signs because we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be self-righteous. We can't articulate it, and so it feels kind of silly. I want to encourage you. Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes it's just you. It's not the Lord. But sometimes it's God. And at a minimum, it's a yellow light, if not a red light. Stop. Investigate. God, I've got, is this, are you trying to direct me here? You're trying to keep me out of trouble here? You're trying to steer me away from something here? It's a still small voice. It can be difficult to hear over the roar of life. So we have got to step back. What are you saying to me? The church. You can think of the historic church. You just sang what the church has believed for two thousand years. There's not a lot of questions on the big parts. They've been decided for thousands of years. So you've got that. You've got these this historic faith that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, to generation and it's solid and it's sure and it hasn't changed. And then you also have your church, your people, the people who love you and love God. Now I would encourage you to check with them. Hey, I have this little sensation, this little feeling about that. What do you think about that? Again, that part of their responsibility is to help watch your back, to help guard your heart. Are you sharing with them? Are you letting them know? Areas where maybe you're tempted. Areas where you're unsure about things. Are you are you aware? bringing those things to their attention. Maybe areas where God's kind of pointing at your heart, pricking at you a little bit. You bring those to your church, your people, people who love you and love him. It's part of their responsibility is to help you process that. And so as you're thinking about guarding your heart and being a shepherd, recognizing deceptions come, God's given you three guides, his word, his spirit, and his church. And you want all three of those things to line up. The Spirit never contradicts the Word. He inspired the Word. He remembers what He said, so He's not going to He's not going to lead you in a way contrary to the Bible. And I would, in in your your people, your church, that they should be confirming as well. I look for agreement from all three of those people, my people, the Word, and the Spirit when I'm making a major decision. I'm trying to discern if something's right or wrong, true or false devastating passage at the end of the Bible. This is in Revelation. It's written maybe 30 years after what we just read in First and 2 Timothy. So maybe 35 or 40 years after Paul's speech in Acts. So we have Acts, Paul saying, savage wolves are coming. Deceivers are going to be raised up in your midst. Three to eight years later, he's, it's happening. And he's telling Timothy, here's what you've got to do. Here's how you combat this false teaching. Here's how, here are the good things that you need to be giving to people. And then this in Revelation 2. If you've got a red-letter Bible, this is in red. This is Jesus speaking to the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus Right. These are the words of him, that's Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And walks among the seven golden lampstands. Don't get bogged down in that. Those lampstands stand for seven churches. So saying Jesus is moving among these seven churches in Asia. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. All that's really good. Commendation, you've done what I said. You recognize these savage wolves, you recognize these false teachers, and you rejected them. Yet I hold this against you. This is a devastating indictment. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And the next line says, If you don't, I'm going to remove my lampstand. Which that means is you can continue to function. You can continue to have meetings and you can preach sermons and you can have music. I just won't be there. The lampstand is kind of indicative. of it. it's, it's what makes an organization a church. It's the presence of God. And he said, I'm going to take that away. You can cross every T. You can dot every I. You can ace the Bible competency exam. Zealous for the truth. And you can lose your first love. It's devastating, devastating. What Jesus says here in in Revelation is, y'all did a great job on identifying deception, on identifying heresy, on identifying lies. You did a great job at keeping those things out. But you didn't cultivate relationship with me. You neglected your first love, me, in the Bible, Truth is not a set of propositions. Truth is a person. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In the Bible, knowing is not intellectual. It's relational. This is eternal life, knowing God and his son whom he sent. We miss it when we reduce a commitment to the truth, to things, a doctrinal statement that we can memorize and sign and say, I agree. What Jesus says is your first love, it's relating to me, it's connecting to me, it's passion for me. If you lose that, you've got nothing. Read the Gospels. The Pharisees were brilliant. They had, Many of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. It's a ton of stuff. 613 commands, plus all of the oral tradition around those commands. Mind-blowing. The things that those guys had internalized. They were brilliant legal and religious scholars. And they couldn't see God when he was literally standing right in front of them. Couldn't see him. You search the scriptures, Jesus says to them, because you think in them is the key to life. I'm, I'm it. They all point to me. So easy for us. To fall into the trap of Pharisees. Those of us, if you've been a Christian for a while. If you're a thinker like me. So easy to fall into this trap of saying, I've I got everything right. I know everything. Give me the test. I'm going to pass. I've got the doctrine down. And for my heart to grow cold. To lose first love. Loving God and loving people. Takes a back seat to being right. That's what Jesus indicts this Ephesian church for at the end of Revelation Now we do know there's a guy named Irenaeus he was a bishop and he said he wrote a letter about this church about 50 or 60 years later and he said they got it they're rolling, everything's great so they, they repented and God restored them, it's wonderful there's a real danger there if we neglect our first love he says I'm, you don't want me at some point I start walking away from you as well on some level if you're going to continue to reject me We don't want to do that. We don't want to be Pharisees, and it's so easy for us to fall into that trap. Here's a controversial example, present day, an issue dividing the capital C church, the redefinition of marriage. Now, I'm going to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. doesn't matter. I'm not protesting who gets to file jointly, joint tax returns, survivorship benefits, who's in the hospital room. All of that is Caesar's, and he gets to decide. It's not my world, and I'm not protesting that. But Jesus says, give God what's his, and what's his is defining this union. We need another word. Two, two different groups are using the same word to mean very different things. We need a different one, but marriage is all we have, and he gets to define that. Caesar gets to say, here are all the, here, here's what these relationships can look like, and here are the benefits that we can give you. God gets to say, here's what a marriage is, his idea. And so you look at those guides to truth. And what does the Bible say? And very clear, Genesis 2, this is what we read. And this is before the fall. This is God's original created intent. I don't see how you can get around this. There's no suitable helpers for Adam. He's just seen every animal that's come by. Nope, 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 nope. He names them, but none of them are suitable helpers. So God put him to sleep, and he took a rib, and he made a woman from the rib. And brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. Now, how about this? That is why. So that is the reason. Because she was taken out of the man because there was no suitable helper found. She's the suitable helper. That's why he leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. Because she's the suitable helper. Because nobody else fit. Nothing else fit. That's the definition and picture of marriage. Jesus confirms in Matthew 19. He quotes this. So it's not just ancient history. Jesus, smartest man who ever lived. Haven't you read? At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. There you see differentiation. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. Jesus confirms what we read in Genesis, homosexuality is not talked about often in the Bible, but every time it is talked about, it's in the negative. Bigger picture for me is this, the concept of marriage. The, that's it. The Spirit never contradicts the Word. It's hard for me to get my mind around people who say, well, it's like the, the, the Holy Spirit's leading us in a new direction. He does that at times. Absolutely. He doesn't lead us in directions that are contrary to what He's already revealed in the Word. And, and we also have the Church. People have been following Jesus for 2,000 years, and they've been following Moses for 4,000 years, and no one has ever said that a same-sex union is compatible with following the God of the Bible. No one's ever said that. It's a, that's a recent development, the last 30 years in the West. You don't see that over 4,000 years of history. People reading the same book, studying the same book, following the same God. It's, that, it's there what we don't, And we can hear that, and some of us are going, yes, give me the sign. Like, we're protesting. We're not protesting. I'm not protesting. I don't want to be a Pharisee. There's truth, and we want to hold zealously to it. And we want to maintain our first love. We want to recognize there are people who are struggling mightily. And they're saying, are you telling me? my choices are Jesus or a family? Are you telling me my choice is Jesus or fulfillment? Are you telling my, my, my choices are Jesus or companionship? Is that, what, is, that the, is that what you're putting on the table for me? If, you can't, if I can't enter into that conversation with compassion, I don't need to enter in at all. If you can't, with tears, say to somebody, I don't get it. This is the truth, and God loves you, and I'm here, and we're going to walk. You don't get to talk, in my opinion. It's not about being right. It's about being a watchman. When I read the Bible, God says, sex is... Here's the circle marriage between one man and one woman. In that circle, sex is righteous and good and beautiful. Outside of that circle, it's a sin because you're making two things one. And God said, and there's no, and He said, the only two things that I'm making one are a husband and a wife. He doesn't, people say, well, God doesn't care who you love. No, maybe not. He says, love everybody. Everyone's either your neighbor or your enemy. You've got to love them all. So he does care. Does God care who you're attracted to? Being attracted to someone's not a sin. God cares immensely about who you have sex with. And he says, "Here's, here's the context. And so for me, I'm looking at that and going, am I leading people astray? Are we leading people astray? If we were to say, it's okay. It's okay. I don't know at what point... People have wandered away from the truth. I don't know where that, that's not a line that I can draw. But there is a line there. And I don't want to be the watchman on the wall who's telling somebody, hey, this is okay. When God's saying, that's not okay. You're patting people on the back as they persist in a sinful behavior. Again, it's not a sin who you're attracted to. It's a sin who you sleep with. And I think there are people with great hearts. They're absolutely are savage wolves. They're not necessarily the ones who are destroying the church. It's people with great hearts who are full of compassion, who are full of empathy, who are thinking they're not seeing an issue. They're seeing faces. And they're saying, what do I say to them? There's got to be space. God is a loving God. He wouldn't want them to be miserable or frustrated or lonely. If science says, People are wired for same-sex attraction. Does that mean God made them that way? What I would say is we're not we're not slaves to nature or nurture. We're slaves to the Holy Spirit. He can overcome both. Which can be cavalier, but it's true. And and I think people with the best of intentions and the greatest hearts are are wading in and saying, How do we make room for people for that Jesus died for? I don't want to be a Pharisee on the other side carrying a sign. Protesting or ...picketing or petitioning. We give Caesar what's Caesar's... ...what's God's are these hearts... ...these precious people who he died for... ...many of whom are struggling mightily... ...with their own desires... ...and what they're reading in the word... ...their own desires... ...and what they're hearing. And they're saying, do I have to make a choice... ...that you've never had to make? Maybe so. If I can enter into that with compassion... And with empathy, I can hold zealously to the truth and I cannot lose my first love. I'm a thinker. Easy for me to become a Pharisee. Some of you are feelers. It's much easier for you, maybe, to release a little bit of your grip on the truth because you love people so deeply. You want to hold on to both of those things. It's just one issue. But it's one that's devastating the church. In our own community, churches have split over that. And churches and denominations will continue to split over that issue, at least for the next ten years. And we want to be people who can hold on to truth and love. We want to be people who can say we are zealously committed to the truth. Not so we can be right. So we can be watchmen. So that we can... Warn the people in our area who are wandering dangerously close so we can invite the people in our area into a full and abundant life. And we want to hold on to our first love, maintain passion for Jesus, loving him and loving people for whom he has died. We don't want to destroy people who God says are precious in his sight. Let's pray. A couple of things. You just need to grab onto one. It's too much to try to work through all of it. Question. You being a watchman. You taking responsibility. For the people. In the place where God has planted you. You're not running their life. You're not trying to change them. You're washing their feet. Serving them with great Humility. You're praying for them, serving them with tears. You're looking for opportunities to share the hope that you found in Jesus. That's what you're doing. Are you a watchman? Would you say you're shepherding your own heart? you aware of what's going in and how it's shaping your thoughts and your words and your behavior. Do you not like what's coming out of you? They want to look at the intake. Are you a Pharisee this morning. You're more concerned about being right. Dotting I's and crossing T's than anything else. Even at the expense of loving God and other people. Maybe this whole issue for you of same-sex marriage. It hits very close to home. It may even hit in your heart. you wrestling through that. What does it look like to hold zealously to the truth in your first love? In my opinion, the truth is very clear on that issue. How does it, what does it look like to walk that out in love with people who are faced with what they see as a almost an impossible decision. If that's where you are, are you praying? you asking the Lord for compassion. Maybe it's a different, we're going to bump into all kinds of things. There are all kinds of issues out there. They're not going to get any better. They're not. Apart from the prayers of the people of God, and their faithful obedience to the leading of His Spirit. Our hope's not in a president, it's not in a congress, it's not in a law, it's not in a march. Our hope's in Jesus. You have influence with God. He's bigger than all those things. You're taking advantage of the access that's been purchased for you. Are you pleading with him. Are you asking him the work and the move. Let's do that before we start talking. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you move in our hearts such a heavy message. I don't want anybody to leave here feeling guilty. That's not from you. Condemned, that's not from you. Overwhelmed, that's not from you. So I pray that you'd highlight just one thing, just one, for each one of us to grab on to. God, we want to be good at watchmen. We want to be able to say like Paul. I've, I've proclaimed to you the whole will, the whole plan and purpose of God. I've served you with great humility and with tears. God, we want to guard our own hearts. We want to gracefully guard the hearts of our brothers and sisters. We don't want to be gossipy or busybodies. We don't do that. But we absolutely want to sound the warning sign if people are wandering towards sin. And God, we want to hold on to truth and to love. We're not looking to be right, we're looking to be witnesses, we're looking to be faithful. So God, would you give us grace in that? God, I pray particularly for those, this whole issue of same-sex marriage, it's very tender for them, it's very personal. Would you speak clearly? Would you show them how to hold on to the truth, how you define marriage, and and to hold on to their first love, loving you and loving others. In Jesus' name, amen.